He had a reason for making you a man or a woman. And men and women are both different aspects of God's divine creativity. They are both needed to complete the creation. As a matter of fact, I would say that the Bible bears out that women are the crown jewel of God's creation because when God was done making women from the rib of man, he then said creation is complete and he rested. And it distresses my heart greatly that men and women do not want to embrace their differences and instead want to be an amalgamation of one another instead of showing forth the creativity that God intended. I'm extremely privileged to be here this morning. I was thinking back, and I think it's been eight years since I've been here, 2015, between family stuff with us, family stuff with the Mayhans, and that wonderful thing that we call lockdown. Uh, It has been uh, quite a while, but I'm extremely glad to be back here with you. And I've been really convicted over the last couple of years in particular, that it's important for Christians to know whom and what we believe. Because there's a lot of people who are in pulpits today, sadly, who do not really know Jesus and are trying to make the Bible say what they want it to say. So I'm going to share with you, by way of introduction... 2 Timothy 1, 7-13, which says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Let's open in order of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would bless uh, this day as we consider who and what we believe. And that you would make us better people for having been here under the sound of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning, but isn't it wonderful that we can know that we have eternal life? So many people, even in Christian denominations, will say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven. But Paul says, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he is able 
to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Paul knew that the things he trusted Christ for today would be valid and solid throughout all eternity. And that's the way that he wanted Timothy to believe as well. He said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we hear more and more today about mental health. And I do believe there is legitimate mental health issues that people need intervention for and sometimes even medicine. But I can't help but think that the rise in mental health issues has striven largely from the fact that we as a society, when there is a problem, we look everywhere but up. The psalmist said, I will look up into the hills from whence comes my help. My help cometh even from the Lord who has made heaven and earth. And I believe that if we would look up and we would look to Jesus, we would see a great revival in our country and we would see those mental health numbers fall because Jesus is the great physician and he is the one who said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So if you want rest, you need to come to the one who can give it and that is Jesus. Just a couple more verses along these lines. But but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father has sent in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now this was written at a time when the disciples were very afraid because Jesus was talking about leaving them. This man who had been with them for three years, um, you know, even a little bit more possibly, and he was saying, I'm going to leave and you can't go with me. But he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and he's going to be in you and he's going to teach you and guide you into all truth. So we need the truth. So that means we need the Holy Spirit. If I'm up here preaching apart from the power of the holy spirit it means nothing i i remember a story of a of a pastor who traveled around speaking and he he uh when he got to the church where he was going to speak he went into a quiet room by himself for for a little while and he said i'm not going to go into the pulpit this morning unless you go with me talking to the Lord because without the Lord preaching is futile the power of Paul's preaching was that he preached Christ and him crucified risen and coming again Jude puts it this way now unto him who is able to keep you from falling And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So Jude had one particular thing that he was going to write his epistle about. But then he realized that he needed to write it for those who needed to contend for the faith. So this idea of contending for the faith... And speaking truth in an era of 
lies is nothing new. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was experiencing that as well, and that's why he wrote these powerful words to us. So what are some of the things we need to know about God in our culture today? Well, the first one I want to bring up to you, and I don't bring this up to you because you don't know it. I bring it up to you because as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be able to be on the front lines and engage our neighbors and our friends and even sometimes our enemies and strangers on these particular issues. But the first one, if you're taking notes, is we are made in God's image. Never has this been attacked more than the last couple of years. About a year and a half ago, we started to get inklings that the infamous Roe versus Wade decision, which legalized abortion in all 50 states, could be in danger. And so states started to draw battle lines. The extremely liberal states made their abortion laws even more liberal, and many of the conservative states said, we are going to take a stand for life. And I think um, at least between, well, I think between 13 and 20 states have made a stand for life in some form, whether it be a heartbeat bill or some other form of limiting abortions, they've taken a stand for life, which I'm grateful for. I remember that day uh, last June when the Dobbs decision toppled Roe versus Wade and weeping tears of joy because I've been praying my whole life that that egregious, um, that egregious uh, Supreme Court decision would be overthrown. It's not constitutional law in any respect and it is definitely not moral law. But what does that leave us with as believers? It leaves us with the opportunity and the necessity of being able to defend the sanctity of human life. Because ultimately, this is a hard issue. And we need to not just do legal things to prevent it, but we need to reach the hearts of mankind. And so what do we learn about this? That brings me to my first point. As I said, we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John or to Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28. These may be familiar verses to you. But one of the things I often think about is that familiarity can breed apathy. So it's good for us to revisit these familiar verses. John, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So this was God's mandate to mankind. And interestingly enough, you will read not a single verse in the remainder of the Bible 
that changes this mandate. It's the same as it was when God made it 6,000 years ago. But the point here is that rather than arguing from the pro-life position simply because you believe that all life is precious and that it is worth preserving and that that you should simply have a right to life. The thing that I have been struck with, especially as, as people that call themselves Christians have been more and more willing to embrace a pro-abortion mindset, is I challenge them with this. Do you believe that you are made in the image of God? Because that's what the Bible says that a Christian is supposed to believe. And so if you believe that you were made in the image of God, you cannot support abortion. Because abortion destroys the image of God. Full stop. No question. So I want to challenge you that if someone brings up their pro-choice argument, especially if they claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, that you would bring to their mind that the Bible says we are made in the image of God. Um, But there is a second prevalent issue today relating to God's image, and that is this issue of transgenderism. Whether we like it or not, many of us will probably run into people that believe that they were born in the wrong body. Now we just read in this verse that God created them male and female with for his purpose. He had a reason for making you a man or a woman. And men and women are both different aspects of God's divine creativity. They are both needed to complete the creation. As a matter of fact, I would say that the Bible bears out that women are the crown jewel of God's creation because when God was done making women from the rib of man, he then said creation is complete and he rested. And it distresses my heart greatly that men and women do not want to embrace their differences and instead want to be an amalgamation of one another instead of showing forth the creativity that God intended. I have a couple cross-references on this topic, and if you could look them up with me, if somebody gets there before I do, I would appreciate it because that will make things go in a more judicious manner. So my first one is Matthew 19, 4 to 8. Matthew 19, 4 to 8. And if you look that up and you want to stand and share it with us, I would appreciate it. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So there's a couple things at play here. First of all, people say that Jesus 
didn't say anything about alternative lifestyles or uh, marriage being between one man and one woman, which every true Christian believes. But Jesus here in Matthew is outlining all of the details pertaining to marriage. That marriage is one man, one woman. The man leaves his father and mother. I think it speaks of men here because it, it's harder in some ways emotionally for a man to leave. So a man is commanded to leave and cleave. And that is the formation of Christian marriage. So Jesus didn't have to say two men and two women is wrong to marry because he told us what's right to marry. So he did say what constituted a godly marriage. It's right here in Matthew chapter 19. And of course, he's referring to Genesis where Moses writes those very words that a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And they too are to be one flesh. Um, And that's the only way that children can come as well. Both a man and a woman are needed for the creation of children, which continues our society. All right. So my next cross-reverence is John 10, verses 9 and 10. I am the the door. Anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come to them life, and they have life, and they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the only way to heaven, which is another way that even people claiming to be Christians will challenge you. Um, but we see in verse John that if anybody does not confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, do not have fellowship with them. That's the litmus test for a true believer. And then he goes on to say, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Everybody in this world, in our society, wants to have the most abundant life possible. There's there's huge self-help sections in the bookstore. Every time I go into the bookstore, there's self-help books everywhere. But we can't help ourselves because we are, without Christ, of all men, most miserable. But with Christ, we can have an abundant life. And I, and you know what? I used to, and I still do. I mean, I think about the fact that we'll have an abundant life in heaven. I won't be in a wheelchair in heaven. I will have a healthy, glorified body with no imperfections. But I believe that Jesus wants us to have an abundant life now as well. He doesn't want us to wait. My eternal life started the day that I trusted him as my Lord and Savior. Yes, there is a future part that I have not yet experienced, but I will someday. And I wish we more people would understand that the key to abundant life is through Jesus Christ. And the problem is that we think that an abundant life in our culture, we think that an abundant life means... Um, a lot of possessions and a lot of money. 
But Jesus said, man's life does not consist of the things which he possesses. He said to the rich farmer who had grain and he didn't have room in in his barn for all his grain. So instead of giving it away and being generous, what did he say? He said, I'm going to build bigger barns. And when he filled those bigger barns, he said, now I'm going to retire and be happy. And God's response was, today your soul will be required of you. So it's not the having of stuff that is wrong. I believe that God allows some people to be wealthy, to serve his kingdom. We wouldn't have half of downtown Grand Rapids as it stands today without the help of some wealthy Christians. So I definitely disagree with some who say that it's wrong for Christians to have wealth. But it is wrong for Christians to be controlled by their wealth. Paul had very specific instructions for those who are rich in the world. He didn't say don't be rich. But he did say don't be controlled by your riches. The image of God in which man was and is made has been variously explained in detail. Although scholars may differ on the nuances of the phrase, there is general agreement that it has to do with dignity, destiny, and freedom. The assertion that man is made in God's image shows each man his true dignity and worth. As God's image bearer, he merits infinite respect. God's claims on us must be taken with total seriousness. But I thought there were some good thoughts in here from James Packer about the image of God. And so I'm just going to double back and talk about the fact that um, we were made in God's image so we have dignity and worth. It's not about what we can produce. Some people would say, well, that person can't talk. Or that person's just a vegetable, so they don't have value in God's eyes. But the reality is that God made everyone, and everyone has value, even if that value is to teach people to serve. I remember one time several years ago, I had been working for a couple summers at Brooke Carith Bible Camp, and I was getting ready for another summer to work there. I was supposed to work there for three weeks, or actually, I think two weeks at first. I was supposed to work there for two weeks, and I was getting ready to leave the following week, and I got a call from them asking me to come a few days early to help with a a shorter camp for younger kids. I was excited about that, and I was a few days away from leaving, and I was at somebody's house for some kind of celebration, whether it was a graduation, open house, or whatever, and my wheelchair started malfunctioning. And I was like, how am I going to go work at camp when my wheelchair isn't working? And I actually went to the camp in my pushchair, um... They actually brought my electric chair out to me a few days into camp, and, and um, but we could not, we could never get it working correctly. So I ended up being pushed around that camp for three and a half weeks. I ended up working an extra week on top of the two and a half that I had planned on, 
And that whole time I was pushed around by my coworkers. And my initial thought was, I'm not really being effective if I have to be pushed everywhere I go. But there were a couple of my coworkers that summer that I got really close to, and they actually said that they appreciated the opportunity to serve the Lord by serving me. And I was profoundly changed by that summer because it takes just as much, if not more, humility to serve others as it does to allow them to serve you. And it taught me a valuable lesson. So my second thing that I want to bring forth to you uh, is found in Jeremiah 17.9, and that is, our hearts are naturally wicked. Have you ever heard somebody say, and sometimes well-meaning Christians even will be caught saying this, and that is that most people are good. Now, on a surface level, there's some truth to that. I mean, most people we know will not go around brutalizing others or cutting people off in traffic or whatever the case may be. But it is a flawed understanding of theology to say that man is mostly good. Because the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we also hear sometimes well-meaning, follow your heart. But the reality is we need to follow God and allow him to change our heart because following our heart can be dangerous. Let's look at Proverbs 28:26. Proverbs 28:26. I I think this tells us two different things. Number one, if we are proud, we we will be destroyed. We will not prosper. And if we are humble and we trust in the Lord, we will prosper. But it also tells us that without the Lord, we can't fight pride. We can't be humbled without the Lord. So I think it's a good reminder to each of us. And then Romans 3, 10 and 11 and 23. Romans 3, 10 and 11 and 23. I have that, so I will read it. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And then Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I'm just going to tack 24 on here. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So first of all, we see that none of us seeks after God. Our natural bent is to seek away from God. That is why, however it works, the choice to choose the Lord Jesus and the fact that we did not choose him, but he chose us, somehow works together in perfect harmony. Jesus said, no one comes to me except my father draws them. If you've ever listened to the show Unshackled, 
You know, there's several stories where there's nothing in their life that would indicate that they would come to the Lord Jesus. But they pick up a Bible or they hear a friend say something about Jesus and it stirs in them a desire that they did not have to come to know the Lord Jesus. And they come to know him and they change because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So we need to understand that the natural bent of men is evil. So none of the violence or other extremely vile things that have been in our world should surprise us. Should they make us sad, upset? Yes, but they should not surprise us because that is the natural bent of man. Your family and one of your best friend's families has decided to go camping, but you forget to bring a container for water. On your way to the campsite, your friend sees a container in the ditch. He stops and picks it up. It has a skull and crossbones on the outside of the container. It says poison on it and has a little bit of poison left in the bottom of the container. So he turns it upside down and dumps the poisonous liquid out. Then when you get to the campsite, he goes to the area that has pure filtered water and he fills the container up with water. Would you or your family be willing to drink out of the container? Of course you wouldn't because the container is contaminated. So is the water. God can never accept the righteousness that comes out of the human heart, no matter how good it looks outwardly. God sees the container it came out of is defiled. No matter how many good works we try to offer God, it can never offset the aggravation of sin. The only thing that can offset the aggravation of sin is the death of Christ. At the cross, justice was answered fully, and God's holy and righteous demands were satisfied. The third day, Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death. God offers salvation to anyone that will come to him in repentance and faith. And that is from David Goring. So Jesus said it this way. He said, uh, wicked, out of a wicked man comes wicked things. Out of a righteous man comes righteous things. You can't get good fruit from a bad tree or bad fruit from a good tree. But the thing that makes our tree good or evil is Jesus. The third Thing I want to talk about is that Christ is the only way. John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no exceptions that you can find anywhere in the Bible. If someone says there's multiple ways, you can shut them down with this verse. Jesus didn't didn't say and after this verse. He didn't say but after this verse. He didn't say maybe after this verse. He just added a period. And that is incidentally why I'm so confident in the truth of this book. Because God never says maybe. He always says yes and amen. Acts 4.12 Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men of which we must be saved. 
So, again, there's no other way but Jesus. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has, not, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Our final cross reference, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, him, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, so he is the only one that can mediate between us and God. I always found it a little strange when I would work with Catholics at Right to Life of Michigan because we would sometimes have corporate prayer together if there was a different, uh, certain piece of pro-life legislation or even if there was a need of someone in our organization, we would have corporate prayer together. And I always wondered, how does it work for a Catholic to be able to have corporate prayer with others when they, many of them, not all of them, but many of them believe that they need to go to confession to have a priest hear their sins, standing as a mediator between them and God. The reality is that this verse in First Timothy means that I don't need to go to a priest to intercede for me. Is it good to have friends intercede for me when I'm facing something difficult? Yes. But only in cooperation with the prayers that I'm already praying. Because I don't require anybody else's intercession. Because the intercessor, Jesus, has already done the full intercession for me. And so that is a blessing to my heart. The fourth point and final point that I want to make this morning is if we believe our future is secure. We also talked about this this morning, and I realize that this verse actually repeats itself from one of my cross-references, but to me, that really shows the harmony of the Word of God. So 1 John 5, 11-13 is where we will find the text for our final point this morning. A lot of people, as we discussed in Sunday school, do not have the full assurance of their salvation, even if they quote-unquote believe in Jesus. But here is what 1 John 5, 11-13 says. And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. I I think that if I had a pen, I would circle this and underline it in my Bible, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. You can know. 
You don't have to wonder. That is the beauty and the blessing of the Christian faith. We started out talking about how Paul knew whom he believed. When he was was getting ready to die and he wrote in his second epistle to Timothy, he said, I am going to receive the crown of life which God has promised to me and not to me only, but unto everyone that loves his appearing. Let's look at a couple verses really quickly as we are drawing to a close that deal with the security of the believer. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. John 10, 27 to 29. John 17, 12. Philippians 2, 13. And Philippians 1, 6. If we could read those in order. So let's start with John 10, 27 to 29. If someone has that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Isn't it wonderful that we have a double layer of perfection? Paul says it this way in Colossians, you are hid with Christ in God. Is anyone closer to God than Jesus Christ? No one's closer to the Father than Jesus Christ is. And yet we are hid with Christ. We have the same standing before God as the Son of God does. What a wonderful thing to know. Jesus is actually called our brother in Hebrews. Now, of course, we can't twist that theology and say that that means that we are gods because we certainly are not. But what a wonderful place that puts us in. John 17, verse 12. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This encourages me to no end. I always tell people, if I could lose my salvation, I would, because I lose a lot of things. But as we talked about this morning, I've been born again, and I've never known anyone who is truly born again to become unborn. The spiritual birth, just like the physical birth, is a one-time decision for all eternity. Yes, the Christian life is a journey of sanctification, which will not end until I reach heaven's gates. And the only thing that will let me into heaven's gates is because I have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. But my eternity was sealed the day that I trusted the Lord Jesus as a almost five-year-old boy. Amen. Philippians 2.13. If we ever start to get too big ahead, we can go back to Philippians and read what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of your good pleasure. No, it doesn't say that. It says it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That means that he will guide and direct us. 
there's a proverb that says the the that man plans his man plans but the Lord directs his step. Sometimes we're caught between two seemingly good decisions and we can be paralyzed by indecision. But no amount of effort or mistakes has ever ultimately thwarted God's good plan for his people. Joseph was cast into a pit and then sold into slavery and his brothers thought, well, we got rid of him. But then they met him several years later and he had saved their lives from famine and he said this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save you and many people alive. They never could have imagined when they sold him into slavery that he would be the governor of all Egypt, but he wasn't ready to be the governor of Egypt at 17 years old. He had to go through trial and error in order to be ready for that task. And we have one final verse. Philippians 1 verse 6. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another key verse here. Who is it that began the work? God began the work. So if I believe that I can lose my salvation, I'm saying that God's work is not good enough to get me to heaven. But if I believe the words of Paul who said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, then I believe that God's work is sufficient. And I believe the words of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. You know, maybe you and I don't complete the work that we do because we're human and we make mistakes and we don't like to follow through. But he completes his work. He doesn't leave work half done. And so we can trust him. Here's that one more final story to share with you, which I thought was good for us to remember as we close. And it goes this way. F.B. Mayer wrote about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. They hired three guys and began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part. The men roped themselves together in this order. Guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. They had gone only a little way up the side when the last man lost his footing. He was held up temporarily by the other four because each had a toehold in the niches they had cut in the ice. But the next man slipped and he pulled down the two above him. The only one that stood firm was the first guide who had driven a spike deep into the ice. Because he held his ground, all the men beneath him regained their footing. F.B. Mayer concluded his story by drawing a spiritual application. He said... I am like one of those men who slipped. But thank God, I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because he stands, I will never perish. Jesus stands. Jesus stood in the gap for us. Jesus fulfilled the law. He never said the law was bad. He said the law 
is important. He said, I'm not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law because you cannot. John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So we can't get ornery enough for God to cast us out. Which I'm thankful for because I've been ornery. Revelation 22.17 says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will may come. John 6.44 No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Notice the phrasing here. I will raise him up. When we go to a cemetery to see the plots of our Christian loved ones, we can know that if we are alive to see the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ will rise first, my grandparents will rise first, then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul's reason for writing this, why was his reason for writing this? He said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I remember one time there was a there was a speaker who hinted that we might not know our loved ones in heaven. But my dad said, why would Paul write this passage and say, wherefore, comfort one another with these words if we weren't going to know our loved ones in heaven? So I believe that I will see my brother John Michael in heaven and my grandparents in heaven. And I'm excited to see my Grandpa Arm, my grandpa Gamison especially, because he died when my dad was four, so I never got to know him. My dad didn't either. But I've heard from my grandma while she was still alive that he would love to greet people, total strangers. He would walk up to them and say, "Hi, my name's Donald Gamison. What's yours?" I have to believe that that's where I got part of my outgoing personality was from my grandpa, Donald, who I will one day see in heaven because he loved the Lord Jesus. And I hope that I will see all of you in heaven. And I will if you love the Lord Jesus. I I have, you know, some new running shoes on order up there um, because I have a lot of running to catch up on. So I'm hoping that you all will be there to see me run in heaven. And uh, it's the greatest privilege of my life to share the gospel. You know, my parents, as Brother Al mentioned earlier, named us after disciples. My dad said that was very deliberate because he wanted us to have names to live up to. And you don't read a whole lot about Andrew in the gospels, but the first story that you read is Andrew running down the beach, or at least that's how I picture it, running down the beach, dust flapping in his sandals. And he says to Peter, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus made Peter one of the great leaders of the early church because of Andrew's willingness to bring his brother to the Lord. And it's been my goal since I started 
speaking for him in 2009 to bring people to Jesus. First of all, to draw the church closer to him. And second of all, to appeal to sinners. As Paul said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But as Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, God is not safe, but he is good. And I testify to that today. So please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today if you have not already. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for being here with us and opening it to us. And we pray that we would be better people for having heard it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.